You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, and welcome to Oleander Book Club. It is the third or fourth week of August, I'm not quite sure at this point. <laughs> I hope you're all doing well, staying safe, staying sane, staying clean, not being a jerk, being cool. And generally, I don't know, enjoying whatever that you're doing to keep doing what you're enjoying. So, hey, I hope you're all well. I, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm in uh, Oleander, Oregon, and I'm not recording at the station today. I'm recording at the uh, tool shed uh, behind the tiny house in the graveyard. Next week will be a full episode. I believe we're going to be talking about the parade. And, uh, yeah, yeah, a parade episode coming up real soon. And what else do we got going on? We've got the episode this week that is going to be about uh, some goblins. And, or what some people think are goblins. Uh, The jury's still out. Uh, Everyone's trying to tell me there's no such thing as goblins. And I'm saying, listen... Listen, what if there are? What if, what if goblins are like even trickier than Bigfoot? I mean, I don't know if it's just this spooky town that I'm looking at now, but I don't know. Goblins could be real, could be a right under your bed right now, lurking around in your fruit cellar. Anyway, so yeah, uh, I'm going to have two goblin stories. One's not quite so much a goblin, one's more kind of like a... Uh, like gnomey people, like uh, small folk, like uh, I don't know, like like little little bearded men with red caps that are you know less than two feet tall. Anyway, so let's go. We've got some Hans Christian Andersen, and then we've got some Algernon Blackwood. That's that's kind of a weird combination, but I like it. I like it. All right. So thank you again for listening to Oleander Book Club. And remember, I think it's next week. Check the community calendar with the next coming show. Uh, we do have the... Um, oh, man, what is it? I, I, I'm i just going to call it what it is. It's the Viking Ren Fair. I don't want to call it the Plague Day Festival, whatever. That is really grim. Um, shame on the city council. Shame on the mayor. Uh, mayor hasn't talked to me in a couple, couple of days. I haven't heard from him for a while. Uh, all, you know, I, I got rid of all the rats. Uh, there's no rats in the city, which is pretty crazy, considering how close we are to a major metropolitan area and ra- the railroad tracks. I, I figured we'd have rats in this town. Guess what? No rats. Uh, so I have no idea what the mayor's talking about. I don't know if he was talking metaphorically of getting rid of rats, but um, yeah. I'm considering this job done and gained experience points. All right, I leveled up. Uh, <laughs> next job, Mayor, if you're listening. So, yeah. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're probably going to talk more about uh, goblins and dungeons and dragons, and I'm going to talk to Ken Hyde about goblins and maybe some gremlins, because I had some problems with my studio equipment the other day. I was hoping that uh, I was going to be able to talk to Ken Hyde about goblins, and unfortunately, it didn't happen, because I had a bunch of wires that were chewed through. I don't have rats. There's no rats around here. I don't believe that the Dusseldorf and uh, Barbacoa chewed through them, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to blame the kids. But, uh, 
if it's gremlins? What if it's, uh, what if it's some kind of monster? What if it's some kind of, uh, cryptid? What if it's, uh, it's, this, this isn't that kind of show. That's, this, I mean, we're, 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 we're based in reality. There's, there's no such thing as gremlins and goblins, but what if we're wrong? What if science is wrong? What if, uh, you know, everything we know about science is correct, except for the fact that there's ghosts, goblins, gremlins, and sea monsters. I mean, coelacanth. They said it was... I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm not really that guy. I'm not really that guy. I'm not going to argue science to uh, justify my beliefs. <laughs> but just make pretend. What if there is goblins? What if they're eating your potatoes right now in your garden? You know. Anyway, uh, that's that's uh, five minutes of me rambling about goblins. Uh, here's some stories. The Goblin and the Huckster. There was once a regular student. He lived in a garret, and nothing at all belonged to him. But there was also once a regular huckster. He lived on the ground floor, and the whole house was his, and the goblin kept with him, for on the huckster's table on Christmas Eve there was always a dish of plum porridge, with a great piece of butter floating in the middle. The huckster could accomplish that, and consequently the goblin stuck to the huckster's shop, and that was very interesting. One evening the student came through the back door to buy candles and cheese for himself. He had no one to send, and that's why he came himself. He procured what he wanted and paid for it, and the huckster and his wife both nodded a good evening to him. And the woman was one who could do more than merely nod. She had an immense power of tongue. And the student nodded too, and then suddenly stood still, reading the sheet of paper in which the cheese had been wrapped. It was a leaf torn out of an old book, a book that ought not to have been torn up, a book that was full of poetry. Yonder lies more of the same sort, said the huckster. I gave an old woman a little coffee for the books. Give me two groschen, and you shall have the remainder. Yes, said the student. Give me the book instead of the cheese. I can eat my bread and butter without cheese. It would be a sin to tear the book up entirely. You are a capital man, a practical man. But you understand no more about poetry than does that cask yonder. Now that was an insulting speech, especially towards the cask. But the huckster laughed, and the student laughed, for it was only said in fun. But the goblin was angry that anyone should dare say such things to a huckster who lived in his own house and sold the best butter. When it was night, and the shop was closed and all were in bed, the goblin came forth, went into the bedroom, and took away the good lady's tongue, for she did not want that while she was asleep. And whenever he put this tongue upon any object in the room, the said object acquired speech and language, and could express its thoughts and feelings as well as the lady herself could have done, but only one object could use it at a time, and that was a good thing, otherwise they would have interrupted each other. And the goblin laid the tongue upon the cask in which the old newspapers were lying. "'Is it true,' he asked, "'that you don't know what poetry means?' "'Of course I know it,' replied the cask. Poetry is something that always stands at the foot of a column in newspapers and is sometimes cut out. I dare swear I have more of it in me than the student, and I'm only a poor tub compared to the huckster. Then the goblin put the tongue on the coffee mill, and mercy how it began to go, and he put it upon the butter cask and on the cash box, and they were all of the waste paper cask's opinion, and the opinion of the majority must be respected. Now I shall tell it to the student. And with these words the goblin went quite quietly up the back stairs to the garret where the student lived. The student still had a candle burning, and the goblin peeped through the keyhole, and he saw that he was reading in the torn book that he had carried up out of the shop downstairs. 
but how light it was in his room out of the book shot a clear beam expanding into a thick stern and into a mighty tree which grew upward and spread its branches far over the student each leaf was fresh and every blossom was a beautiful female head with some dark sparkling eyes others with wonderfully clear blue orbs every fruit was a gleaming star and there was a glorious sound of song in the student's room never had the little goblin imagined such splendor far less than he had ever seen or heard anything like it he stood still on tiptoe and peeped in till the light went out in the student's garret probably the student blew it out and went to bed but the little goblin remained standing there nevertheless for the music still sounded on soft and beautiful a splendid cradle song for the student who had lain down to rest this is an incomparable place said the goblin i never expected such a thing i should like to stay here with the student and then the little man thought it over and he was a sensible man too but he sighed the student has no porridge and then he went down again to the huckster's shop and it was a very good thing that he got down there again at last for the cask had almost worn out the good woman's tongue for it had spoken out at one side everything that was contained in it and was just about turning itself over to give it out from the other side also when the goblin came in and restored the tongue to its owner but from that time forth the whole shop from the cash-box down to the firewood took its tone from the cask and paid him such respect and thought so much of him that when the huckster afterwards read the critical articles on theatricals and art in the newspaper they were all persuaded the information came from the cask itself but the goblin could no longer sit quietly and contentedly listening to all the wisdom down there so soon as the light glimmered from the garret in the evening he felt as if the rays were strong cables drawing him up and he was obliged to go and peep through the keyhole and there was a feeling of greatness rolled around him such as we feel beside the ever-heaving sea when the storm rushes over it and he burst into tears he did not know himself why he was weeping but a peculiar feeling of pleasure mingled with his tears how wonderfully glorious it must be to sit with a student under the same tree but that might not be he was obliged to be content with the view through the keyhole and to be glad of that there he stood in the cold landing place with the autumn wind blowing down from the loft hole it was cold very very cold but the little mannikin only felt that when the light in the room was extinguished and the tones in the trees died away ha then he shivered and crept down again to his warm corner where it was homely and comfortable and when christmas came and brought with it the porridge and the great lump of butter why then he thought the huckster was the better man but in the middle of the night the goblin was awaked by a terrible tumult and a beating against the window shutters people rapped noisily without and the watchman blew his horn for a great fire had broken out the whole street was full of smoke and flame was it in the house itself or at the neighbors where was it terror seized them all the huckster's wife was so bewildered that she took her gold earrings out of her ears and put them in her pocket that at any rate she might save something the huckster ran for his share papers and the maid for her black silk mantilla for she had found means to purchase one each one wanted to save the best thing they had the goblin wanted to do the same thing and in a few leaps he was up the stairs and into the room of the student who stood quite quietly at the open window looking at the conflagration that was raging in the house of the neighbor opposite the goblin seized upon the wonderful book which lay upon the table popped it into his red cap and held the cap tight with both hands the great treasure of the house was saved and now he was up and away quite on to the roof of the house on to the chimney there he sat illuminated by the flames of the burning house opposite both hands pressed tightly over his cap in which the treasure lay and now he knew the real feelings of his heart and knew to whom it really belonged 
but when the fire was extinguished and the goblin could think calmly again why then i must divide myself between the two he said i can't quite give up the huckster because of the porridge now that was spoken quite like a human creature we all of us visit the huckster for the sake of the porridge end of the goblin and the huckster from what the moon saw and other tales by hans christian anderson read by christopher most thank you so much for reading that chris hey if you want to read something for us find a story in the public domain or something you have written yourself record it just just use your iphone or record it on uh, i don't know facebook messenger and send it to our uh, facebook page which is just 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 look for oleander book club or radio free oleander any of those on facebook you'll find us it'll have the old page title on it because facebook won't let us change that and we haven't gotten around to making the new page yet but hey it'll be fixed and just pgttcm.com that's a good way to contact us uh email us uh through pgttcm.com to find out how to contact us for real uh we've had to set up some buffers there's some weird stuff going on with the radio station <laughs> and we don't want to get into that legal stuff right now with the radio station because i'm not clear for that it's uh, above my pay grade um anyway so um we also if you want to i don't know advertise with us like bunnyslippers.com and founditemclothing.com get t-shirts from your favorite favorite films from the 80s and 90s did you like that t-shirt that styles wore in teen wolf yeah you can have a what are you looking at dick nose or you can wear a cool shirt like chris knight from uh, real genius i heart toxic waste that'd be pretty cool and bunnyslippers.com, everything from the Cthulhu slippers to the dino sound slippers that make noise when you walk to the woolly bully uh, highland cow slippers. Don't forget about the cool slippers that you can plug into USB ports or microwave to keep your feet warm. If you live in a place that's cold or you just don't want to have cold feet when you're walking across your linoleum or concrete floors, I don't know, maybe you're some richy rich who has a big, big house that has like concrete floors floors and concrete countertops and you just want to wear some woolly bull slippers while you walk around your house. Sorry, I like house slippers, let me be correct. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com, founditemclothing.com. Check them out. Portland owned and operated. Alright, so hey everyone, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. We are at the midpoint. We're going to have some Algernon Blackwood coming up. And I hope you enjoy it. So thank you for listening. Check us out on Facebook, Oleander Book Club. And check us out. PGTTCM is the site that I'm using to share this with you. So here we go. More goblins. Recording by Dan Gerzinski. The Goblins Collection by Algernon Blackwood. Dutton accepted the invitation for the feeble reason that he was not quick enough at the moment to find a graceful excuse. He had none of that facile brilliance which is so useful at weekend parties. He was a big, shy, awkward man. Moreover, he disliked these great houses. They swallowed him. The solemn, formidable butlers oppressed him. He left on Sunday night when possible. This time, arriving with an hour to dress, he went upstairs to an enormous room, so full of precious things that he felt like an insignificant item in a museum corridor. He smiled disconsolately 
as the underling who brought up his bag began to fumble with the lock. But instead of the sepulchral utterance he dreaded, a delicious human voice with an unmistakable brogue proceeded from the stooping figure. It was positively comforting. It will be locked, sir, but maybe you have the key. And they bent together over the disreputable kit bag, looking like a pair of ants knitting antenna on the floor of some great cave. The giant four-poster watched them contemptuously. Mahogany cupboards wore an air of grave surprise. The gaping open fireplace alone could have swallowed all his easels, almost indeed his little studio. This human Irish presence was distinctly consoling. Some extra hand or other, thought Dutton, probably. He talked a little with the lad, then, lighting a cigarette, he watched him put the clothes away in the capacious cupboards, noticing in particular how neat and careful he was with the little things. Nail scissors, silver stud box, metal shoehorn, and safety razor. Even the bright cigar cutter and pencil sharpener collected loose from the bottom of the bag. All these he placed in a row upon the dressing table with the glass top, and seemed never to have done with it. He kept coming back to rearrange and put a final touch, lingering over them absurdly. Dutton watched him with amusement, then surprise, finally with exasperation. Would he never go? Thank you, he said at last. That will do. I'll dress now. What time is dinner? The lad told him, but still lingered, evidently anxious to say more. "'Everything's out, I think,' repeated Dutton impatiently. "'All the loose things, I mean.' The face at once turned eagerly. "'What mischievous Irish eyes he had, to be sure. "'I've put them all together in a row, sir, "'so that you'll not be missing anything at all,' "'was the quick reply as he pointed to the ridiculous collection of little articles "'and even darted back to finger them again. "'He counted them one by one.' And then suddenly he added, with a touch of personal interest that was not familiarity, It's so easy, you see, sir, to lose them small bright things in this great room. And he was gone. Smiling a little to himself, Dutton began to dress, wondering how the lad had left the impression that his words meant more than they said. He almost wished he had encouraged him to talk. The small bright things in this great room... What an admirable description, almost a criticism. He felt like a prisoner of state in the tower. He stared about him into the alcoves, recesses, deep embrasured windows, the tapestries and huge curtains oppressed him. Next, he fell to wondering who the other guests would be, whom he would take in to dinner, how early he could make an excuse and slip off to bed, then, midway in these desultory thoughts, became suddenly aware of a curiously sharp impression that he was being watched. Somebody, quite close, was looking at him. He dismissed the fancy as soon as it was born, putting it down to the size and mystery of the old world chamber. But in spite of himself, the idea persisted teasingly, and several times he caught himself turning nervously to look over his shoulder. It was not a ghostly feeling. His nature was not accessible to ghostly things. The strange ideal lodged securely in his brain was traceable, he thought, to something the Irish lad had said, grew out, rather, of what he left unsaid. 
he idly allowed his imagination to encourage it. Someone, friendly but curious, with inquisitive peeping eyes, was watching him. Someone, very tiny, was hiding in the enormous room. He laughed about it, but he felt different. A certain big protective feeling came over him that he must go gently, lest he tread on some diminutive living thing that was soft as a kitten and elusive as a baby mouse. Once indeed out of the corner of his eye, he fancied he saw a little thing with wings go fluttering past the great purple curtains at the other end. It was by a window, a bird or something outside, he told himself with a laugh, yet moved thenceforth more often than not on tiptoe. This cost him a certain effort. His proportions were elephantine. He felt a more friendly interest now in the stately, imposing chamber. The dressing gong brought him back to reality and stopped the flow of his imagining. He shaved and laboriously went on dressing then. He was slow and leisurely in his movements, like many big men. Very orderly, too. But when he was ready to put in his collar stud, it was nowhere to be found. It was a worthless bit of brass, but most important, he had only one. Five minutes ago, it had been standing outside the ring of his collar on the marble slab. He had carefully placed it there. Now it had disappeared and left no trail. He grew warm and untidy in the search. It was something of a business for Dutton to go on all fours. Malicious little beast, he grunted, rising from his knees, his hands sore where he had scraped it beneath the cupboard. His trouser crease was ruined. His hair was tumbled. He knew too well the elusive activity of similar small objects. It will turn up again, he tried to laugh, if I pay it no attention. Mal, he abruptly changed the adjective as though he had nearly said a dangerous thing. Naughty little imp, he went on dressing, leaving the collar to the last. He fastened the cigar cutter to his chain, but the nail scissors he noticed now had also gone. Odd, he reflected, very odd. He looked at the place where they had been a few minutes ago. Odd, he repeated, and finally in desperation he rang the bell. The heavy curtains swung inwards as he said, Come in, in answer to the knock, and the Irish boy, with a merry dancing eyes, stood in the room. He glanced half nervously, half expectantly about him. It'll be something ye have lost, sir, he said at once, as though he knew. I rang, said Dutton, resenting it a little to ask you if you could get me a collar stud for this evening. Anything will do. He did not say he had lost his own. Someone, he felt, who was listening, would chuckle and be pleased. It was an absurd position. And will it be a stud like this, sir, that ye's wanting? asked the boy, picking up the lost object from inside the collar on the marble slab. Like that, yes, stammered the other, utterly amazed. He had overlooked it, of course, yet it was in the identical place where he had left it. He had felt mortified and foolish. It was so obvious that the boy grasped the situation. More had expected it. It was as if the stud had been taken and replaced deliberately. Thank you, he added, turning away to hide his face as the lad backed out with a grin, he imagined, though he did not see it. Almost immediately, it seemed, then he was back again, holding out a little cardboard box containing an assortment of ugly bone studs. 
Dutton felt as if the whole thing had been prepared beforehand. How foolish it was! Yet behind it lay something real and true, and utterly incredible. They won't get taken, sir, he heard the lad say from the doorway. They're not nearly bright enough. The other decided not to hear. Thanks, he said curtly. They'll do nicely. There was a pause, but the boy did not go. Taking a deep breath, he said very quickly, as though greatly daring, "'It's only the bright and little lovely things he takes, sir, if you please. "'He takes them for his collection, and there's no stopping him at all.' "'It came out with a rush, and Dutton, hearing it, let the human thing rise up in him. "'He turned and smiled. "'Oh, he takes these things for his collection, does he?' he asked more gently. "'The boy looked dreadfully shamefaced, confession hanging on his lips.' The little bright and lovely things, sir, yes, I've done me best, but there's things he can't resist at all. The bone ones is safe, though. He won't look at them. I suppose he followed you across from Ireland, eh? The other inquired. The lad hung his head. I told Father Madden, he said in a lower voice, but it's not the least bit of good in the world. He looked as though he had been convicted of stealing and feared to lose his place. Suddenly, lifting his blue eyes, he added, "'But if you take no notice at all, he generally puts everything back in its place again. He only borrows them, just for a little bit of time. Pretend you're not wanting them at all, sir, and back they'll come presently again, brighter than before, maybe.' "'I see,' answered Dutton slowly. "'All right, then,' he dismissed him. "'And I won't say a word downstairs. You needn't be afraid.' as the lad looked his gratitude and vanished like a flash, leaving the other with a queer and eerie feeling, staring at the ugly bone studs. He finished dressing hurriedly and went downstairs. He went on tiptoe out of the great room, moving delicately and with care, lest he might tread on something very soft and tiny, almost wounded like a butterfly with a broken wing. And from the corners he felt positive. Something watched him go. The ordeal of dinner passed off well enough. The rather heavy evening, too. He found the opportunity to slip off early to bed. The nail scissors were in their place again. He read till midnight. Nothing happened. His hostess had told him the history of his room, inquiring kindly after his comfort. Some people feel rather lost in it, she said. I hope you found all you want. And tempted by her choice of words, the lost and found, he nearly told the story of the Irish lad whose goblin had followed him across the sea and borrowed little bright and lovely things for his collection. But he kept his word. He told nothing. She would only have stared, for one thing. For another, he was bored and therefore uncommunicative. He smiled inwardly. All that this giant mansion could produce for his comfort and amusement were ugly bone studs, a thieving goblin, and a vast bedroom where dead royalty had slept. Next day, at intervals, when changing for tennis or back again for lunch, the borrowing continued. The little things he needed at the moment had disappeared. They turned up later. To ignore their disappearance was the recipe for their recovery. Invariable, too, 
just where he had seen them last. There was the lost object shining in his face, propped impishly on its end, just ready to fall upon the carpet, and ever with a quizzical, malicious air of innocence that was truly goblin. His collar stud was the favorite. Next came the scissors and the silver pencil sharpener. Trains and motors combined to keep him Sunday night, but he arranged to leave on Monday before the other guests were up, and so he got early to bed. He meant to watch. There was a merry, jolly feeling in him that he had established quasi-friendly relations with the little borrower. He might even see an object go, catch it in the act of disappearing. He arranged the bright objects in a row upon the glass-top dressing table opposite the bed, and while reading, kept an eye slyly on the array of tempting bait. But nothing happened. It's the wrong way, he realized suddenly. What a blunderer I am. He turned the light out then. Drowsiness crept over him. Next day, of course, he told himself it was a dream. The night was very still, and through the latticed windows stole faintly the summer moonlight. Outside the foliage rustled a little in the wind. A nightjar called from the fields, and a secret furry owl made answer from the copse beyond. The body of the chamber lay in thick darkness, but a slanting ray of moonlight caught the dressing table and shone temptingly upon the silver objects. It's like setting a night line, was the last definite thought he remembered, when the laughter that followed stopped suddenly, and his nerves gave a jerk that turned him keenly alert. From the enormous open fireplace, gaping in darkness at the end of the room, issued a thread of delicate sound that was softer than a feather. A tiny flurry of excitement, furtive, tentative, passed shivering across the air. An exquisite, dainty flutter stirred the night, and through the heavy human brain, upon the great four-poster, fled this picture, as from very far away, picked out in black and silver, of a wee knight-errant crossing the frontiers of fairyland, high mischief in his tiny beating heart. Pricking along over the big, thick carpet, he came towards the bed, towards the dressing-table, intent upon bold plunder. Dutton lay motionless as a stone, and watched and listened. The blood in his ears smothered the sound a little, but he never lost it altogether. The flicking of a mouse's tail or whiskers could hardly have been more gentle than this sound, more wary, circumspect, discreet, certainly not half so artful. Yet the human being in the bed, so heavily breathing, heard it well. Closer it came, and closer. Oh, so elegant and tender, this bold attack of a wee adventurer from another world. It shot swiftly past the bed, with a little flutter, delicious, almost musical, it rose in the air before his very face and entered the pool of moonlight on the dressing table. Something blurred it then. The human sight grew troubled and confused a moment. A mingling of moonlight with the reflections from the mirror, slab of glass and shining objects obscured clear vision somehow. For a second, Dutton lost the proper focus. There was a tiny rattle and a tiny click he saw that the pencil sharpener stood balanced on the table's very edge. It was in the act of vanishing. But for his stupid blunder, then, he might have witnessed more. 
He simply could not restrain himself, it seems. He sprang, and at the same instant the silver object fell upon the carpet. Of course, his elephantine leap made the entire table shake, but anyhow, he was not quick enough. He saw the reflection of a slim and tiny hand slide down into the mirrored depths of the reflecting sheet of glass, deep, deep down, and swift as a flash of light. This he thinks he saw, though the light, he admits, was oddly confusing in that moment of violent and clumsy movement. One thing at any rate was beyond all question. The pencil sharpener had disappeared. He turned the light up. He searched for a dozen minutes, then gave it up in despair and went back to bed. Next morning he searched again, but having overslept himself, he did not search as thoroughly as he might have done. For halfway through the tiresome operation, the Irish lad came in to take his bag for the train. "'Will it be something you've lost, sir?' he asked gravely. "'Oh, it's all right,' Dutton answered from the floor. "'You can take the bag and my overcoat.' And in town that day he bought another pencil sharpener and hung it on his chain. End of The Goblin's Collection by Algernon Blackwood much for reading that. Thank you, thank you. And hey, if you want to read something, contact us at pgttcm.com or track us down on the Facebook and we'll, 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 we'll set you up. We'll, we'll tell you how to send it to us and uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's how Zach got his own podcast and Dave became a contributor to the show and then became, I don't know, one of the showrunners. We are definitely looking for people to read stories and if you have an idea for a show and you want to have that show on Radio Free Oleander, feel free to contact us. And uh, yeah, no, it's nothing like we're not looking for anything like a half hour, 20 minutes or anything like that. We're looking for short, sweet, edit it, send it in, we'll put it up, kind of little shows. And it could be anything that you think would be popular in Oleander or on Radio Free Oleander. So, you know, skies limit Oleanderins. I think that's... Thank you so much for listening to Oleander Book Club. We're part of 1130 AM Oleander, Oregon. Thank you so much for listening to KZOM 1130 AM. Up next is Robot Opulette, hosted by Gertrude Oleander. Um, and a note says, Robot Opulette. Yes, it's the same name as my store. Robot Opulette in beautiful Old Town Oleander. Store open by appointment only. Serious collectibles. No teenagers. Um, yeah, I, I, I've walked past it. I've, I've seen inside the window. It's, it's really impressive. I can't afford anything there. I'm not sure who the store is for. It looks like a museum for a private collector. Uh, yeah. So, and also there is an ad for Warren Duke, House of Schnitzel and Worst. Come for the schnitzel, stay for the worst. You'll find this food so magnificent, you will look deep inside your soul and say, I am really nothing. This food is everything, and you will walk away in shame. 
schnitzel and wurst out on highway 26 next to teenage rebel auto parts